Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 and verse 1. Uh, when I was growing up, I have, uh, I have one sister. She's older than I am. And um, we're really good friends now, but once in a while we'd have conflict when we were growing up. And since she was, she was almost four years older than me, uh, I was always the victim. And uh, so I had, to, I had to learn ways to, you know, kind of equalize the playing field. And I, I don't remember this, actually, but my parents tell me that uh, one day I, I stumbled upon a, a way to um, really uh, balance the playing field a little bit. Uh, apparently, she had somehow developed this uh, fear that I would bite her in the stomach because that was about the level of my head. And so uh, whenever she was, uh, you know, she was taking advantage of me in some, some inappropriate way, I would just... I'd just bare my teeth and I'd go, ah, and I'd chase her through the house, like, ah, like, and she would scream, ah, he's going to bite me, Brian's going to bite me, ah, you know, and, and that would, you know, balance things out, and I would get the upper hand, and I would be in control again. All I had to do was just, ah, go like that, and, and she would freak out. And, you know, now that I have kids, I, I look back and I go, God, what did we put our parents through? And I realize now that um, children are, are born for conflict. And we have to train them to love one another and to forgive one another. I was thinking about that this week, and I, you know, I just remembered again that uh, the first recorded sin that we have in the Bible after the garden is between two brothers, and it's murder. Right? We don't, I'm sure there were other sins, but we don't see the gradual escalation. What we see is murder, hatred and then murder. This morning we are going to talk about uh, the issue of conflict and conflict resolution. It's a huge topic, it's a huge topic. A, a friend of mine just actually sent, gave me a, a couple books to read. He's working on his dissertation on this topic of conflict, conflict resolution in the workplace. How do we deal with it? You know, and, and we were just chatting just for a second earlier. It's, you know, and he was just saying, it's just huge. It's an enormous topic. We have 30 minutes. We can't cover it all. I want to lay out just a few principles from Philippians 4 that uh, I think are applicable in uh, relationships with roommates, with husband and wife, with friends. Uh, and I'm going to encourage you. I'm going I'm to give you one recommendation right now so I don't forget. Great book that you should read. Every believer should read at some point in time. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's, an, it's a really significant book. So this morning, let's just lay out a few principles and see how they apply to our lives and start in Philippians chapter 4, we're also going to be looking a fair amount at the book of Proverbs. It talks a lot about conflict. So I want you to read with me chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion... I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. How would you like to be remembered? <laughs> I read this passage and I think, oh, I would hate to be Yodia or Syntyche. Inscribed forever in the pages of history as unable to resolve their conflict. So much so that the Apostle Paul had to call them out. You know, Paul hardly ever names names unless it's a heretic. He doesn't name names. But here, you know, it's, it's these two ladies and he calls them out. He names them in Scripture. So for thousands of years, there it is, right in Scripture, that you couldn't resolve the conflict. You want to be known as such a person. 
super sensitive, easy to offend, has a hard time forgiving and resolving and moving through the conflict? Or would you rather be known as this true companion, this one who is uh, so mature that not only is he able to resolve his own conflicts, but he's able to step in and help others get their conflicts resolved? How would you like to be known? This morning, there are two big questions that I want us to look at. The first is this. How can we reduce the number of conflicts and the intensity of the conflicts in our lives? Second, how do we resolve them and then restore peace? Okay? How do we minimize them? How do we come, become people of peace so that there actually are not so many conflicts in our lives? Conflicts don't stick to us as much. And then once we've entered into a conflict, engaged in a conflict that we can't avoid, how do we get it resolved and restore peace in our lives? So let's start with the first point. How do we reduce conflict in our lives? Uh, The first and most simple principle is anticipate attack. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These women are uh, otherwise proven leaders in the church. They are otherwise really mature. They have shared Paul's struggle in the gospel. They have been fellow participants in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, in living for the gospel of Jesus Christ in their community. Anyone and everyone will get pulled into conflict because we are living in a fallen world. You will get pulled into conflict. You need to anticipate And be prepared. If you're prepared and know that you're going to get pulled into a conflict at some point in your life and you're ready, you know how you want to respond, you are going to be so much better prepared when it comes and it will come. If the primary way that the world knows that we are followers of Jesus Christ is through the way that we love one another, then expect that Satan is going to try to crush our love for one another and instead create conflict and division and dissent and hatred in the place of love. That is the way that he attacks us. So be ready for it. I find that, uh, unfortunately, there are so many believers who are in the church now who have absolutely no skill in resolving conflict. They grew up in houses that were full of conflict, and so they don't know how, to, in a healthy way, in a godly way that honors Christ, get those conflicts resolved. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to develop this skill. That's one of the reasons I recommended this book by Ken Sandy. I think it's a great training manual, and you need to be prepared. Second, adopt the attitude of Jesus Christ. And this may sound a little simplistic, but I want you to walk through this with me. Look with me again, chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. That word for living in harmony is used 10 times just in the book of Philippians. It's the word phreneo. It means to be of the same mind. It means it has to do with your mindset or your orientation or better, your fixation, your obsession in life. The whole book of Philippians is pushing us toward being fixated on the person of Jesus Christ, knowing him and making him known. When you see that word, Uh, If you saw it in the Greek text, it would immediately throw you back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is the most uh, significant passage theologically and practically in the whole book of Philippians. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Same word there. Having the same orientation, obsession, 
fixation in life. Be united in this. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There the word is used again. In just one verse, it's used two times. Have exactly the same mindset. If you have exactly the same mindset, then you will experience unity. What is that mindset? Well, chapter 2, verse 5, remember he tells us specifically. He says, have this mindset or this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the same orientation which Christ had. And what was his orientation or his fixation? It was to surrender his rights. Not to claim his rights, not to guard his rights, but to give up his rights. Let's read it again. It's it's so significant. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he was fully God. He had all of the power and the rights and the privileges of being God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and defended. Instead, he emptied himself and took on the very form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said, while I am on this earth, I will not defend my rights. Think about it. Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross and he's looking down at the men who literally have just driven spikes through his wrists and through his feet, who have literally just finished beating him with a cord that has bones wrapped in it and jamming thorns upon his head, spitting in his face and making fun of them. And he looks down upon them and he says, Father, forgive them. The greatest way that you can reflect God-likeness is through forgiving. You want to be like God? You want to have people see God in you? When people don't deserve to be forgiven by you, you say, Father, forgive them. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's not demanding payment from them. Instead, he's saying, Father, forgive. Even this transgression of crucifying me, let me pay for it. Let me take the cost of the wrong that they have done against me. I want you to keep your place here in Philippians and turn back to Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11. You may want to stick something in the book of Proverbs because we're going to flip back there a few times. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. It says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It is his glory to not pick up the offense because when you forgive, you are most like God. You want to be a person who is like God, don't claim your right to defend yourself. Relinquish your right to defend yourself. We're tempted to read in the book of Philippians and think, well, maybe it was just a minor conflict. You know, Paul doesn't even bring up the matter involved. Could be minor, could be major. That's not what is significant. 
What is significant is that they reflect Jesus Christ in the way that they resolve the conflict. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a great illustration of this principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother. And that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather, Paul says, surrender your rights? You have a legitimate right, and you might go to the court and win your lawsuit. Why not rather turn over and relinquish your rights for the sake of Jesus Christ? That is what's most Christ-like. Do you want to become that that person to whom conflicts, they just, they don't stick? Because you're so much like Jesus Christ. That's how we want to be, and that's how we want to become known. Now, the fact of the matter is, even the more and more we become like Jesus Christ, conflict is going to come and it's going to find us, Right? It's going to chase you down. You're going to get pulled into it. And once you are there, how do you resolve it? How do you fix it? Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 4 again and verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved Verse 2, I urge Yodi and and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. You see, in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, throughout the book of Philippians, the fact is that we have a shared identity. When I am pulled into a conflict, the first thing that I do is I've got to go and I've got to be alone with the Lord. And what I do is I rehearse my common ground with this brother or sister in Christ. I go through a, a mental and spiritual exercise of rehearsing my common ground with this person. I have a shared identity in Jesus Christ. And the reason I have a shared identity is because I have a shared forgiveness with every single one of you sitting out there who knows Jesus Christ. We share the same cross of Christ. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Why should you forgive other people? Because they deserve it? No. That is not the basis of forgiveness and reconciliation. The basis of forgiveness and reconciliation is because Jesus Christ has forgiven you. And Jesus Christ has forgiven the brother or sister that you're in conflict with. Look at the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Same principle, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. 
So then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's why we forgive, because we have a common Savior, a common experience of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The result of that is that we have a common destiny. We're going to live forever together because we are in Christ. I don't know if you noticed it, but in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul pulls out like the, the greatest theological trump card. He says, remember that these people's name, all of them, their names are written in the book of life. Okay, that's, that's, that's the, that is the big trump card of theology. Remember, that's all that really matters. Your names are written in the book of life. You have a shared destiny to be with Christ and to rule and reign with Christ. That means right now you have a common cause together, a common mission. He began the exhortation that we're reading about all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 27. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, same word, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, this is the basis of unity because to me to live is Christ. And if for me to live is Christ and for you to live is Christ, then And I can get myself in that mindset before I go and approach you about the conflict or before you approach me about the conflict. If I'm in that mindset, then the heat of the conflict is greatly diminished because I realize there are much more important issues that are going on in this world if I look at things through the eyes of Jesus Christ. What's most important to me is that the reputation of Jesus Christ be furthered. So I'm willing to lay aside rights. I don't have to win. And in fact... It might be that if I win, Christ loses, and I'm not willing to accept that. So the first thing that I do is I step back and I try to rehearse this common ground. I try to get myself in a proper mindset. What is really most important to me in this life and what is really most important to you in this life? And that is Jesus Christ being reflected through our relationship. So that's where I start, rehearsing the common ground. Second, initiate the resolution regardless of blame. Look at chapter 4, Philippians, and verse 2. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, this is, uh, it's actually a very unusual construction in Greek grammar. Usually, uh, Paul will just use the verb once. He'll say, I urge Yodia and Syntyche. And that one verb governs, governs both people. But instead, it's very strange. Paul repeats the verb both, for both people. He says, I urge, I, I exhort, I'm begging Yodia, and I'm begging Syntyche, please live in harmony in the Lord. And Paul doesn't uh, rehearse the circumstances. He doesn't place blame. He places the burden of responsibility on each of them to resolve this conflict. Each of you go and initiate with the other, regardless of the blame. Troy read earlier that passage in in Romans chapter 12 that I think is so critical to keep in mind. Right in the middle of that passage, it says, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You can't 
force the other person's hand. You can't manipulate the other person. You can't control them and get them into a proper mindset. You can't cause them to forgive you. But as far as it depends upon you, you take care of your part of this conflict. You take care of your business. I want to take a little aside for just a moment. I want want to talk about the issue of of empathy. Uh, Empathy means uh, being able to actually put myself in your position. How would it feel like to be you? We are, uh, in case you were not aware of this, we are born narcissists. <laughs> if you've never had a baby, just wait. I mean, that, that's just, that is how we are born into the, this world. We actually happen to live in a culture, too, that really um, feeds narcissism. Uh, our culture promotes narcissism. And so there are a lot of us who, our families, they never trained us to stop being preoccupied with ourselves and learn to actually feel what it would be like to be in the other person's position. If I can step out of the tension of the conflict for a moment and and in my mind say, what, what would it be like to be that person? What are they feeling? What is their perspective on this? What else may be going on in that person's life right now? that is causing them to react like they're reacting? What's in their background, maybe, their history, that's causing them to react like they're reacting? What's going on for them? When I can do that and step out of myself and get into their shoes, it changes my whole perspective. Again, it it reduces the tension for me in this relationship and reduces my sense that I must win. And Tristy and I, we have a a, a little um, kind of mental relational trick that we play on ourselves, when, when our circumstances are, are very stressful, and that happens to us every once in a while, we're just going through, it just seems like there's trial upon trial, and things are really tense and stressful, one of us will wake up and say, you know what, I think we should just say right now, nothing counts. And what we mean by that phrase, nothing counts, it's not we're giving each other a pass to beat each other up. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, Right now, we need to give one another extra grace. Extra grace is required right now because we're under tension and stress. We're probably going to say things that we just don't mean. Let's step back from it and don't pick up the conflict. Don't even pick it up. Because we know what's true about our relationship. And we might say things that are not according to that truth. Let's just step back and and empathize a little bit more. Let's, Let's ratchet up that empathy meter. And for a period of time, let's just say nothing counts. Uh, for you young parents, the first eight weeks to eight years of, of uh, your having, having a child, I mean, that's too long stretching, but oh man, that, you know, you're not sleeping at all. You're going to say things that you really don't mean. I'm not, I'm not saying you should, and you may need to resolve it and forgive, but remember, this is, this, it's a, it's a, period in life. Step back and empathize. Husbands, how is your wife feeling? She's not sleeping at all. All she's doing is feeding and wiping and changing and wiping and, and feeding and, and burping and picking up, throw up. and do. I mean, and she's just physically, emotionally, completely worn out and she snaps at you. So what? Put yourself in the other person's position. That's empathy. This is like a muscle that must be built. It will reduce the number of conflicts and it will solve them quicker. 
Okay, so first two principles. First, rehearse your common ground. Second, initiate the resolution regardless of blame. Third, keep it to yourself. The situation in Philippians chapter 4 is, in a sense, already a huge failure because the whole church knows about it. Again, I read, every time I read this passage, I think, oh, gosh, I would not want to be one of these two ladies. And don't think it's just women that have conflict, okay? They happen to be the ones who got called out, but it, it, conflict strikes men and women Adults, children, everybody, absolutely everyone. But this situation happens to be uh, already, in a sense, a failure because everybody knows about it. If you are in a conflict, keep it to yourself. Okay, don't spread it. That's why James says the tongue is like a fire because, you know, you light it and it's gone. And And once it is spread, it is so much more difficult to get the conflict resolved because if I hear about your conflict with somebody else and you've told me about that conflict with you, then I, I, I must, I almost feel obligated through the friendship to take your side. And somebody else is going to take the other side. And then pretty soon you discover that everybody who knows about it is lined up opposite to one another. And what happens a lot of times is the two of you are able to come and you work it out. But then there are 30 or 40 people who don't have the context in which to work out this conflict. And they're still angry at one another. And you've created an enormous problem for the body of Christ. Keep it to yourself. Start between you and the Lord and then go to the other person. All right? If we take nothing away this morning, let's, let's take away that principle. So, related, corollary principle. Somebody comes to you to tell you about a conflict that they are in or that they have heard of. What do you do? I exhort you, I implore you. This is very difficult to do. But turn to that person and say, I'd really rather not know about it. I will tell you, that takes a lot of courage because you have just made that person feel incredibly awkward. (laughs) If you are not a direct part of the solution, if you are not the true companion who is being called upon to step in and help create resolution, then you say, I'd rather not hear about that. I want you to turn back the book of Proverbs with me again. Chapter 20. Verse 19. 2019, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not even associate with a gossip. Gossip can include information that is actually true, but it doesn't need to be told. Do not even associate with such a person. Uh, Imagine yourself as a gossip cul-de-sac. Okay, that information drives down your street, but it never leaves. There's no exit. Look at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. I love that. He who conceals a transgression seeks love. He doesn't want it to spread. So if the conflict is one that you're involved with, the most gracious thing that you can do is to not even pick it up. 
to overlook a matter. If it's conflict you're not involved with, don't listen to it. Don't get pulled into it. You know, if, if just one of us would say that to the person who's spreading it around, it might shut the whole thing down. It'd be awkward for a moment, but you know, you really want to be known as that person. Oh man, I'm, I got to I got to go tell Rick about this. Oh, you know, that wasn't very comfortable last time. I, I don't think I'm going to tell Rick about that because he doesn't. He he made me feel really stupid. He made me feel like a gossip. <laughs> Who can I tell? <laughs> now, not every conflict can just be dropped, right? Sometimes you can't, you can't overlook it. You've got to go, and you've got to get it resolved. If that's the case, then go directly to the source. And as you go, go with the spirit of empathy, trying to understand, where's that other person coming from? What are they feeling? And practice forgiveness. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah Chapter 43, Isaiah 43 and verse 25, the Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What's he saying here? God is omniscient. Can he actually forget? No. Uh, It's a figure of speech. He's saying, I I will not remember. That is, because you have sought my forgiveness, I will forgive. Meaning, I will not hold you accountable. I will not demand payment from you. That's what he means by forget. That is the essence of forgiveness. And you got to remember, forgiveness is not normally an event. Somebody wrongs you and you say, I'll forgive them. We're done. Oh man, this is great. Want to have lunch? If it's a deep wound, it doesn't happen like that. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. You choose not to hold them accountable. You're angry in your mind and you run through the punishment of how God should punish them and how you want to punish them. And God convicts you and you say, no, I'm going to let God have vengeance. I trust God. I trust God that he will get justice for me and I will not demand vengeance. I remember that I've been forgiven just as they have been forgiven by the cross of Christ. I will not hold them accountable. And five minutes later, Satan brings it up again in your mind and you have to again push it out and you replace it with the thought that God will protect you and God will guard you and God will get justice for you and you've been forgiven so much in Christ and then maybe it's seven minutes and then it's ten minutes and then maybe you're able to go hours or a day and you practice and again, forgiveness, it's like empathy, it's like a muscle and the more you practice forgiveness, the better forgiver you become. You learn to take that thought captive and set it aside. That is the essence of forgiveness. That's how forgiveness works. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love and he says, love keeps no account of wrong. That's forgiveness. The wrong happens and you know about it and you can't forget it, but you choose not to continually hold that person accountable, whether practically and actually or whether just in your mind and rehearsing the debt that they owe. That's forgiveness. You push it aside. Now, if this morning you are, you've been wounded and you're angry and you want payment, then what I'm saying to you sounds like absolute foolishness and you're saying, no, it just can't work. It doesn't work that way. Well, you know what? You're right. It won't work for you. It won't. 
As long as you are clinging to it and you are demanding that you get payment back from that person in some form or fashion, that they, be, that they suffer, that they pay you financially or physically or emotionally, and you're clinging to that, you will never know the sweet fruit of forgiveness and the power of forgiveness in your life and the other person's life. You won't know it. On the other hand, if you take a risk and you begin to practice it, I can't guarantee you that it'll change the other person, but it will change you. And instead of becoming a shriveled up bitter person, which is where you go, that's the pathway, that's where it ends, you will become whole and healthy and mature and people will long to be around you because you will be so much like Jesus Christ. I want to give you an illustration of this. Um, I I highly recommend you read this book. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me. The authors came and they spoke at um, Twin City Mission fundraiser. Same kind of different as me. I won't tell you the whole story, but at the beginning of the story, you learn that uh, the husband had an affair. And um, when his wife finds out about it, when he finally confesses it because he's coerced to confess it, she flies into a rage. She's so angry. She's throwing things at him. Um, She finally settles down. Uh, They go and they talk to a a wise counselor. They get some good advice. And then one evening, this is what happens. It says, back at the house that night, we were sitting in our bedroom retreat talking when Deborah asked me something that nearly made me faint. I want to talk to her. Will you give me her phone number? Meaning the woman that he had had the affair with. Deborah's resolve at that moment was like a student skydiver who once at altitude strides straight to the plane's open door and leaps out without pausing to bat down the butterflies. She picked up the bedroom phone and punched each number as I recited it. This is Deborah Hall, Ron's wife, she said calmly into the phone. I tried to imagine the shocked face on the other end of the line. I want you to know that I don't blame you for the affair with my husband, Deborah went on. I know that I've not been the kind of wife Ron needed and I take responsibility for that. She paused, listening. Then she said, I want you to know that I forgive you. I hope you find someone who will not only truly love you, but honor you. Her grace stunned me, but not nearly so much as what she said next. I intend to work on being the best wife Ron could ever want, and, I, and if I do my job right, you will not be hearing from my husband again. Deborah quietly placed the phone in his cradle, sighed with relief, and locked her eyes on mine. You and I are now going to rewrite the future history of our marriage. I will tell you, I see broken marriages all the time. Christian broken marriages. Now you may read that story and if, if you are the offended party, you know, you, you, there was an adultery committed against you or you have been physically abused or something like that, huge deep wound, you hear that and you say, that is the most foolish thing I've ever heard. You know, Deborah, the the wife, she may have been 99.9% perfect as a wife. And and on his adultery is never an acceptable thing under any circumstances. She might have been perfect as a wife, but she, as the offended party, showed grace. Do you understand? Grace is never deserved. That's the point of grace. You never deserve it. You did not deserve to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. That's why it's grace. That's what brings healing to relationships. 
When the parties bring grace, it is not deserved. It is not deserved. And I know that there are marriages right now out here that are almost completely broken. They can be healed. I have seen them healed. It is an absolute miracle of God. You cannot produce it on your own because you can't give that kind of grace. You won't give that kind of grace. But God can give that grace through you. Will you try, please, just for the sake of Christ? Not because the other person deserves it. You know, I can't guarantee you that your grace will change your friend, your spouse, your husband, someone who's hurt you. I can't promise you that, but I can promise you that it will change you. You will become more like Jesus Christ. This is the most God-like thing you can possibly do is to give grace and forgiveness. That's the most God-like thing you can possibly do. Now, we don't have time to go in. The last point is simply this. When necessary, seek help. Don't spread it, but sometimes it's so deep, you can't fix it yourself. And deep wounds take a long time to heal. I understand that. I also understand that forgiveness is not the same as restoring trust. Restoring trust takes time. You tell someone a secret and they go out and share it. You might not be wise to share it with that same person again. But grace means even to that person, you give them an opportunity to rebuild trust into your life. How often have you failed Jesus Christ in the same way? And does he open himself up to you again? That's being like Christ. Okay? That's what this church needs to be more like Christ. So what I want you to do, I want you to think this morning about three things, and I want you to take these with you this week. Okay, the first is this. In any of my relationships, do I need to grant forgiveness to someone for Christ's sake? Do I need to seek forgiveness for Christ's sake? Do I need to choose to honor Christ rather than guard my own rights? We're going to end this morning with communion. Communion is it's a picture, remember, of the grace that God has given us through Christ. It's also a picture of the fact that we are unified in Christ. The elements are served, we wait, we take them together because we're one body in Christ. So as the ushers come forward and they pass out the elements to us, I'd like for you just to spend some time alone with the Lord thinking through these questions and then we'll take communion together.
The night before Jesus was betrayed by one of his close companions, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is a symbol of my body. It will be broken for you. In my body, I will take the payment for your sins. Let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood will be poured out to make payment for the penalty for your sins. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you that you have made payment and it's final and complete. And we thank you, Jesus, also that you've given us an example that we can follow in your steps. It's not a forgiveness we can give on our own, but your spirit can empower us to love Jesus the way that you love, to forgive as you have forgiven. Empower us to stay to do so. Let's sing this hymn together. What can wash away my sins? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood For my pardon, this I see. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for my cleansing, this my only plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Stand and sing this chorus. in peace and this is all my hope and peace nothing but the blood of Jesus and this is all my righteousness it's nothing but the blood of Jesus and no Father, for all those who are hurting this morning, who have been wounded, these marriages that are, are really shaky right now, or maybe marriages that have, have broken, folks who have uh, suffered at the hands of others, whether it's uh, physical or through words or speech, Lord, we need to become people who forgive because we need to become like Jesus. Lord, probably we have wounded others 
pray, Father, we would have the courage to go and to seek reconciliation. To ask for forgiveness and to acknowledge the wrong we've done. Father, most of all, we thank you that we can walk out of here in freedom in Jesus Christ because we know we have been forgiven through his blood. It gives us peace. It gives us strength. Lord, I pray for this body of believers that you'd make each and every one of us more and more like Jesus Christ. We'd show grace, grace that is undeserved because we've received it in Christ. It's in his powerful, precious name we pray. Amen. Go in God's peace.